Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope everyone's well. I just returned from a long week in Amsterdam and Copenhagen, uh, working with Stephanie Posovic and the folks at Graphic Hunters to put on a couple of workshops. So I am digging out. And so apologies for the day delay in getting this episode of the podcast out to you. But I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, If you haven't heard, um, and hopefully you have, uh, R.G. Andrews from the website InfoWeTrust has just published his new book, InfoWeTrust, which is um, an extraordinary run through the history of data visualization, uh, both a look back and a look forward and what we can learn from these texts and, and how we can apply those teachings to the work we do today. Um, the uh, book was fully illustrated and written by R.J. He uh, uh, designed the papers, designed the cover. Um, it's really a fantastic book. I just got my copy. It just hit bookstores uh, last Thursday uh, on the 17th of January. So now it's out and you can get your hands on it. Um, so uh, back in December, RJ and I sat down at the Tapestry Conference uh, in a little side room, found a little spot, and the two of us talked about his process for writing um, the book, the content of the book, and what he hopes folks will get out of it. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the Policy of His podcast. And I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a new guest and a new episode. Thanks a lot. My name is RJ Andrews. I am a data storyteller. I've spent the last few years publishing my experiments and explorations of data storytelling on a website called infowetrust.com. About a year and a half ago, an uh, editor from Wiley reached out to me and gave me a very generous offer to spend some time um, thinking about and writing about the craft of data storytelling. And now that's what I've done. And so I've written the book, Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. Uh, it's coming out January 17th in 2019. I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. That's great. So tell me about what does it mean to you, the craft of, of data visualization, especially as it's coming in, in, in through the book? Sure. So. I use the word craft um, throughout the book, and I I talk about uh, the craft of data storytelling. Now, whether you use data storytelling or use data visualization or dashboard design or any sort of number, like the craft waves many banners across many communities. It's been referred to by many different titles across time. But what I see is um, sort of a continuum, and I like using the word craft you know, versus other words you might consider, such as art, because um, craft has some sort of suggestion of utility, mm-hmm. practical usefulness, but also has some suggestion of skill, artistry, something you make with your own two hands. And guess what? Like, even if you're typing on a keyboard and on a mouse pad, like, you're still using your two hands. It's right. still a very human activity, and it's a human act, not only a human you know, creation activity, but it's um, it, it's for a human audience, mm-hmm. right? And so I like using the word craft, A, because it puts the emphasis on how human, um, the process of creating charts and maps and diagrams and depictions and sort of new ways of seeing the world. But then I also like it because you can think of the craft as this long 400-year-old tradition that wasn't born... Um, with big data, wasn't born with the internet, wasn't born with interactive computers. Um, you know, the craft stretches very, very far back, and uh, it has always been evolving. It has always been improving, and it will continue to. And it's our 
it's really our duty to be good stewards of the craft and to keep pushing it forward and keep learning not only how to make better information, but how to learn how to better inform people into the future. So tell me about a little bit about the history, because I understand that's the book is going to touch on that, and you were telling me earlier that you read a book a day for for a while for a while yeah. for a while is your home just like stacks of books like is it crazy yeah. person stacks of books to the ceiling yeah uh, so every flat surface in my home at, at one point was uh, <laughs> definitely and and the the physical i love the physicality of books yeah and there's this sort of idea you know what do you do when you get you know, stuck, you know, maybe not quite writer's block, but you get stuck like, well, one of the things you can do is you can rearrange your books. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, like, what is, what does the word information mean? Like, information means putting something in formation. Mm -hmm. Like, you're arranging, like, the data doesn't change, right? right? Like, you're just arranging, you know, where kind of all the yeah. dots are. Um, and so you can do that with, you can do that with books and, and you put them in different stacks and then maybe you know you can get restarted because you notice new connections between right. different. And it's not as satisfying when you're moving the, the PDFs on your or on your Kindle, but yeah. like, like to stack them up pretty high is. You know, yeah, I mean you can you can fit, fit a lot of books on your hard drive, but the problem is is that they're not accessible. Right. Like you right. can't see them. There's not this physical reminder. Yeah. You mentioned kind of the deep history of the craft. Yeah. You know? And so I was very. Um, intentional, maybe even strategic, and how I wrote my first draft. And what I did when I started researching the book, I read what I consider to be all the modern classics. So Bertine, Tookie, Tufty, Holmes, and Cleveland um, all wrote really important books between like 1960, I think 67 or 69 for Bertine, and then all the way up to uh, Cleveland's first big book, which came out, I think, in 1985. Mm -hmm. And like, so why that time frame? Well, two reasons. One is that this is before um, interactive computer like really made a big splash. Right. Like books after 1985 talk about like how to click, right? And like spoiler alert, books are not a great medium for talking about like <laughs> yeah. how to how click, click yeah. right? Um, like go, go on the web and learn learn how to do that. Um, and so looking at pre 1985, what I was really interested in seeing is like what principles, what lessons, what were they describing from back then that still resonate with what I know as a practitioner today. So you can think of like two inputs went into the first draft. Like one input was all of these enduring principles that still work and then my own craft. Mm -hmm. And I figured if, if, you know, the fireworks between those two streams, you know, was, was something that had a chance at not, at least not being fashionable, not something that's going to kind of like not make sense in a year from now, like something that would be a little bit longer lasting, have a little bit longer shelf life. And so that was one reason to do it. The other reason was I wanted the, the narrative of the book and the book does have a narrative. It sucks you right through, um, to be written in my own voice mm -hmm. and to have a unique sort of skeleton. And I, and I, and I knew if I read, you know, or reread in many cases, a lot of the sort of post-1985 work, which are honestly a lot of it written by my colleagues, written by my friends, mm -hmm. um, that their voice, their perspective would influence me so too much. So pre-1985, I read these modern classics, mm -hmm. um, I write the first draft, you know, a couple months later I have a first draft, then I can go back, revisit post-1985 uh, right. and polish and refine, and in many cases talk to these people and say, hey, like, what do you think of this? This is how I'm thinking of framing, you know, this thing or that thing. But the, the, and there's an additional part to the book that I think is important for people to know. So you laid the whole thing out, and everything is like hand drawn. 
Yeah, there's sort of the uh, content of the book, which is sort of what you might walk away learning and also the the sort of enjoyable experience you might remember. But then there's also the form of the book. And so when I mentioned this great opportunity that the publisher gave me, it was complete creative control. And so when I say complete creative control, I did the layout. I obviously wrote it and I did uh, these 300 or so hand-drawn illustrations. Um, but it went a lot further. It was the quality of the hardcover. It was mm-hmm. the quality of the paper. It was um, proofing um, the color printouts to make sure things are you know, registered correctly. And so I'm a designer, right? And so a designer can become a micromanaging perfectionist. Lovely is they didn't only kick off the project giving me this control, mm-hmm. but they stepped, um, you know, took every step with me and engaged with me and, and, and did the eight iterations with me that I demanded, and they never flinched. Hmm. You know, they were patient, and they said, you know, we're giving you the ball, and we want you to score, yeah. and we're going to support you. And you do it. To, yeah, to have the opportunity to have that sort of support and engagement is just phenomenal, yeah. right? Yeah. So were any of the books that you read, did any of those books inspire the form in which the book ultimately yes. so, took? Yes. So, um, Two books in particular inspired the form uh, from the get-go. Um, and so one is a book by Robert Greene called The 48 Laws of Power. And uh, this book um, is very interesting. It's a very interesting read. The content of the book is, is, is entertaining. The idea is that uh, it's sort of a, I don't know, a late 20th century Machiavelli. You know, these are the law, laws of power. Do with them what you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how power works. Um, that book has a sort of um, Talmudic or biblical uh, form design design kind mm-hmm. of inspiration in that it's packed with marginalia. So all the central narrative is black. The marginalia is red, very much like a Bible, right? Oh uh, yeah. Um, and so it has this parallel or multiple narrative form to it. So I I love that book because what marginalia does is it lets you squeeze in all these little points of inspiration that if you had to put them in the main narrative, it would slow down the narrative and it would distract you from the flow of the narrative. And so if I have a great quote from Levasseur from the 1880s when he's talking at the statistical conference and it's something that somebody in the 1880s is saying and I'm, and I'm, I'm, and I'm bringing it forward not because I want you to appear at something that's dusty, but I wanted you to show you that somebody who is informing people in the 1880s is saying something that's as relevant today as it was back then. I, I don't have a spot in my narrative to put that. Mm-hmm. To frame it, it would just it would just the book would grow from 208 pages to 400 yeah. pages, and that's a drag. So I can put it in the margin, right. and it's there if you want to dance between the black narrative text or the blue marginalia. You can do that, or forget the marginalia, come back to it some other time. Yeah. And so it's this opportunity to really uh, almost choose your own adventure in terms of right. how you read the book. That was one important book. The second important book that uh, inspired the form was Oliver Burns' 1843, uh, The Elements of Euclid. And so this is a very famous book in the the book design community. Uh, Tufte even paid homage to it in one of his his books. Um, But the idea is that, uh, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 years before people like Mondrian were using primary colors to do sort of like very abstract diagramming, he was explaining Euclidean geometry using um, geometric shapes right in line with the text. And so instead of saying the words red circle, he would just illustrate a red circle. And um, and so his primary color palette of dark blue, burnt orange, golden yellow, 
is, uh, is what I riffed on to get my primary color palette. Um, I tried to adopt his illustrations in line, and what I found is that very small illustrations are too close to emoji, and they just don't work. Oh. Like, and, and, and in a similar way that a marginalia quote would interrupt the narrative flow, right. I find that the inline illustrations also interrupt the narrative flow. And what you want to do when, when you're reading a book is that you want to sort of lose a sense of self, and you want to co-create the narrative with the author, right? So the author is giving you an input, and they're ex and, and the author is exciting this um, this story that you're creating in your brain, co-creating with the author, and like little little diagram illustrations, you know, right in line. Uh, I found uh, were were disruptive. Okay, so I have just so as an aside, then yeah. I have to ask: Are you an infinite jest? David Foster Wallace fan? Uh, yeah. Or, okay. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so people have asked me about about that, and I actually only looked at that um, once I started showing people my prototype chapters. Yeah. Like, oh, you have to check. <laughs> you have to check, you have to check this out. Yeah. yeah. Like the the, the the multiple narratives. Yeah, the multiple yeah. narratives. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone through the the modern text and the book, as I get a sense of it. Um, you're talking about which aspects of those works still ring true today, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also curious, are there aspects that no longer hold true? Sure. So when you open up some of these older books, especially Bertine, and, um, they're quite large, like four or five hundred yeah. you know, pagers. Right. I mean, they're, they're honestly sort of textbooks. And I've already written and published some you know, design essays on what I think is so great from all of them. And so without kind of retreading that, <laughs> yeah. that space, um, there's a portion of each of these books uh, which is uh, essentially a product of their time. So instructions for how to use a graph paper or um, you, know, you know, basically how to do things that just we don't have to worry about anymore. And you know, because they're textbooks, you know, some of these books have pages of you know, uh, data tables. Um, they have examples or case studies, which you don't really have to read every word of. Um, so you can really skim a lot of these and get books and get to the, the, the good meat. Yeah. Okay. Beyond these anachronisms, uh, what I what I found is, um, you know, in in Bertine is that, you know, style-wise, Bertine sort of overframeworks everything, okay. and everything fits into a two by two or uh, a hierarchy right. or and it it was very very important for him to do this because what he was doing was really building a structural like sort of academic bridge between cartography and and data visualization in a way that created such a strong foundation that decades and decades of authors have been able to react to it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that what he put forward is like state-of-the-art anymore, yeah. right? Okay, so maybe that's Bertine. Um, like for, for Tufti, and you know, may, maybe I'll say a little bit more, something a little bit more critical of Tufti, and so in that sense, what I'll say is you know, positive for Tufti is that he still is one of the best describers of what's so magical about the craft. Mm -hmm. In terms of being able to capture like why this is so wonderful, he was able to do it. You know, you read his contemporaries, and nobody seemed to get that. Yeah, nobody seemed to get sort of this like just human magic that was happening with with this craft. Like the beauty of the beauty of graphs and charts. Yeah, as opposed to like, well, it's just a way to get numbers. Yeah, and, and, and not a superficial beauty, but the 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 beauty of informing a mm. mind and exciting a mind to like a new way of seeing the world. Like very poetic language describing what's happening. Uh, that's what I love most about him. But he has a very prescriptive style, right? Do this, don't do that. 
and you know, honestly, the craft uh, evolved. The craft is very complex, and so that very hard prescriptive style, I don't think, has aged well at all. Um, and so, the other thing about um, a lot of these authors, but particularly Tufte, I think, is that um, he's a he's a critic. He's right. an analyst, right? Ac academics are sort of analysts, like that's their job, right? Their job is to say that's not working. And so the critic analyst doesn't bring the same thing to the table as a maker, as a creator, uh, such as one of his contemporaries. And sort of one of his, you know, they kind of went back and forth a little bit, but Nigel Holmes, right. you know, who was a maker and was able to say, this is why you do it. And see, here are all the examples that I've done and I've done successfully. In, in that space, you know, it's, I want to listen to Nigel, not, not to Tufty, mm. because... Tufty's like, well, this is how I think, you know, from my, you know, ivory tower. Right. Um, With no real, like, yeah. quantitative support. Well, no, or no evidence. No, no really. evidence. Right. Like, where, where's your, I mean, yeah. And, and maybe he has done a lot, but that's not what the book's full of. The book's right. just full of other people's work right. And, right. and his thoughts on it. Um, and the thoughts are often really interesting and really inspiring. But, um, but that's sort of like a gap there. Yeah. And, um, I mean, maybe the only other thing is that, uh, you know, he anchored very hard on efficient encoding. Mm -hmm. That's sort of graphic efficiency, right? But really, if you're gonna if you're gonna design for efficiency, you want efficient decoding, mm -hmm. efficient informing. Yeah. And so, uh, a great example of that is if you're going to use multiple multiple graphic visual channels, right, to communicate the same thing. So we're going to use both size and color. Right to encode this particular uh, data dimension. Right. And, you know, graphically, is that efficient? Well, maybe not as efficient as only using one one, one, right, channel, one element. Yeah. But from a decoding informing perspective, it's much more efficient because mm -hmm. it's much more easy for somebody to kind of like hook into what's going on. Right. Huh. Interesting. So uh, let me put it this way: mm -hmm. what, what modern books are you like? These are the these are the ones that you put up on the. You know, on the pedestal, on the pedestal, to like the top part of the bookshelf, right? Sure. So, um, so there's sort of like three categories, and I actually think there are some emerging categories, which is very exciting. Mm. But you know, there's sort of one category of books, which is um, how to use a, a particular technology, how to pull the levers. Okay, yep. that's one category. Another category are coffee table books, mm -hmm. um, and so big, beautiful. Uh, full color photo kind of, you know, photo viz is like maybe, you know, one of the, uh, a great example of this, but there's sort of a subcategory emerging of historic viz, mm -hmm. which is being published in, you know, so you have uh, Sandra Rengren's um, uh, Menard book, Menard book yep. you have the Du Bois book that just came out. So it's been like kind of like a really uh, exciting year for historic data viz coffee table books. Yeah. All right, that's the second category. The third category is kind of like approaches to the craft. And like, kind of like, no matter what technology levers you're pulling, here are some principles that you want to be aware of. And so, personally, Alberto Cairo's book, *The Functional Art*, um, which I think came out in 2013, that was the book for me. Mm -hmm. So that was the book that I read when I was just starting out, and that's the one that really turned my mind on. It wasn't the first book I read, but it was the one that like made things start to click and really sent me down, mm -hmm. really sent me down this path. So personally. That book is still very important to me. Right. Um, in terms of citations, like what, what modern book did I cite the most in my own book? Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably Tamara Munzer's um, okay. book. And what, what's great about what she does is that um, the data viz academic 
literature is not the most accessible corpus of work. Right. <laughs> um, and so what you rely on, um, you know, me not being an academic, is what you rely on is people like Kennedy Elliott did a really great roundup of mm-hmm. some of the literature at, I think it was Kennedy. Yeah, at, at, at uh, OpenViz. At OpenViz, yeah. maybe three years ago or so. Yeah. And then um, I think Lisa Charlotte Rose has done a bunch of also kind of like summary kind of work, and that editorial work is so valuable Mm -hmm. um, to practitioners because it's hard to wade through uh, the papers. But, you know, that summary work is, you know, Kennedy's and and Lisa's work, those are sort of medium-length articles, and go read them. But then if you want to go kind of like a little bit deeper, and then go go pick up the Munzer book because um, she is able to explain it all in a way that... You know, it's not a narrative that pulls you through like a like a story, but it it is a uh, a book that has a, a lot of punch per pound. Right, right. There's a it's an incredible amount of value throughout it, and it's a great. It's a. I mean, there's other ways to hack learning the research. Right, mm-hmm. you can look at citations, and, um, and I mean, there's ways to read research in, uh, in in kind of an efficient way that doesn't like take over your life. Right, but like read Tamara first. Do you view her book as the kind of natural evolution of Cleveland's book and then even Bertine before that, where it's, I don't know, a little more academic, a little more rooted in in the research Mm. as opposed to sort of a prescriptive or critical or, you know, a a beautiful coffee table book? Yeah. I I mean, they're so far apart in time that you'd you'd have to, like, fill in in the, I mean, a second book and then... um, you know, Wilkinson. Right. So there, yeah. There, there, there are other like kind of dots along the way, but it's certainly in that flow. Yeah. What one thing that's interesting, and this is another early design decision I made with my book, is one thing that really impresses me about Cleveland is that the book is almost entirely black and white, very sterile, very uh, sort of like surgically precise charts, yeah. and they're fantastic. Tassie. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, if you want to take, you know, uh, in, in information to ink ratio or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's really outstanding and really impressive to have a visual consistency mm-hmm. throughout the whole work and demonstrate all the principles he's talking about um, with all these data sets that he has selected in order to demo these principles. Right. And, you know, I, I, as an author, you know that choosing the example data set, you know, to show a principle is like not always an easy thing to do. And one of the things I I leaned on Cleveland for is um, in some of my examples, I looked at what data set he used and then I went back to that data set and refreshed it with the last 30 years worth of data. Mm -hmm. And so like that's, you know, there's a lot of tributes and homages throughout my book and that's one of them is that I'm actually using some of the same uh, same data, but updated with you know filling in the last thirty years, right? Uh, uh, and, and so that's so. Tamara's a little bit different. That there's it's a much graphically richer book, and that she's calling on a lot of different examples from a lot of different sources, right? Yeah. And so in in that sense, it's it's uh, it's broader, it's more expansive, but then it doesn't have the same kind of personality punch mm-hmm. that Cleveland's book does. Yeah. And so um, it's not a it's not a you know one's better than right. the other it's approach. Different. It's very it's yeah. just a different yeah. slightly different animal. Right. Yeah. So let's get back to the design of the book because one of the things that I've seen of the book and and your sort of 
last few weeks of mm. you know priming the book on Twitter, all these drawings and illustrations that you're doing. Sure. And one of the things that I find and that I've talked with lots of people on the on the podcast is about drawing. Mm. And a lot of people who are data scientists or analysts who are more sort of identify with the statistics or data side, they don't want to draw. Like they're like, I'm not an artist, I'm not a designer, I can't do any of that. So do you have like a prescription for people who say, I can't draw and so I'm not going to draw? Sure. So let's let's make sure that just like when you're visualizing data, there you can cleave drawing into two categories. One is I'm drawing for my own personal discovery and insight and then I'm drawing to inform. Uh, others, you know, it's a it's a communication tool. So as a communication tool, and, I, and this isn't strict either, but as a communication tool, you might you might think, well, this should look nice, right? right. But let's put that aside for now. Yep. Um, let's talk more about drawing for yourself. So drawing for yourself, um, it's not even if you didn't know how to draw well, um, you're not going to draw well when you're drawing for yourself because. And, and so what do you need to know? You need to know how to draw a square, how to draw a line, how to draw a circle. That's like pretty much it. Yeah. And, and so uh, the uh, visual thinking author, Dan Rome, yep. like this is, this is his banner, right? Yeah. Um, and and he, he extends it not only to drawing for yourself, but drawing even collaboratively with others. Uh, okay, so you can draw, anybody can draw a square, a circle, a line. All right, so why is it so important to go off the screen and draw? Okay. One is that there's nothing faster, there's no tighter link mm -hmm. between the brain and externalizing an idea from the brain to the outside world than drawing. It happens very, very fast. It happens so fast you don't have to think about it. And so why that's important is that as soon as you externalize and get it out of your brain, it's less wrapped up in your own identity and who you are. It's less fragile because you're not going to forget it. But even more important than that is that you can look at it, you can say, aha, there it is, and you can react to it. And you can make another drawing, and you can have another thought and another idea, and you can keep thinking, and you can keep drawing, and you can have a dialogue with yourself by drawing. And so this is something that I learned even more about from Nick Susanis, uh, the author of Unflattening, the comics professor, um, the power of drawing as a thinking tool. Now, power of drawing as a thinking tool, that's sort of like, you know, there's a whole body of work and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of idea about that. But there's also an idea of using drawing and data visualization, data storytelling to explore form. Mm -hmm. And so, um, personally, I'm maybe not the most talented developer, coder, and so I'm not always going to prototype everything in code. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes we do, but often we don't. Um, and that's because I'm very fast with, you know, just sketching. You know, mm -hmm. I bring out my arts and crafts supplies and I, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I go wild. But even if you were the best coder in the world, well, coding is a certain angle on the problem. Mm -hmm. You should be taking advantage of every angle you can on the problem. Right? So why not try something new, even if it looks bad? Especially if it looks bad. If you're a good coder, it's going to look great. Mm -hmm. So why not try something that doesn't look great and see what you learn from it? Right, right. So I, I think this split is great because I think when you say to people who are, who are you know, data people and you ask them to draw, I think their first in instinct is, oh, this is something that we're going to show, mm. or it's not. It's, I want to understand your thoughts about how you want to present this. So when you work with partners and clients and, mm -hmm. and collaborators, do you have to have these hard conversations with them? Like, are you trying to convince them to, to draw? Um, I'm trying to convince them to draw. Uh, I'm trying to convince them to uh, write. 
uh, to yeah. describe. Right. Um, I, so w when you're working with a partner or collaborator, like most of the like the value that always materializes that for whatever reason a lot of people don't expect is that there's an enormous value to getting everybody around the same table and actually like having a conversation, conversation. on like what what <laughs> what's actually there like when we use these words what do we mean yeah. and and so um, you know one of <laughs> one of the values i bring is you know playing the fool and saying, but I don't. Like, I what do you mean by that yeah. word? Yeah. Like, what are you referring to? Right. Like, explain. No, 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 no. no. But, but what, what exactly yeah. is that thing? And uh, and then when you do that, and when you push people, and you don't you don't worry about uh, annoying them, uh, <laughs> is that you realize that uh, often that a lot of people talk about you know use the same word to talk about you know have different understandings, different you know every word is uh, it comes uh, uh, comes with a, a, a whole sort of network of concepts that are all related to one another and so when anybody uses one word they're sort of highlighting you know a portion of those concepts and that's sort of what they're what they're leaning into and mm -hmm. so when you use certain words you can you can sort of have different understandings on what's really going on yeah um, I think we're talking about drawing we're talking oh, yeah, about drawing, so, yeah. so, so with, <laughs> with, with with partners um, drawing together is Great. I've done this activity one-on-one -on -one with people where I'll cover a, uh, I'll cover a, a kitchen table right with like mm -hmm. a, uh, like a butcher board paper. Yeah. And like we'll each take a different color, never red, like maybe black and blue, right? All right. And then we'll just talk, and we'll both be just like doodling while we talk. Right, right. With one another and kind of like like see and like so that's like a very loosey-goosey kind of freeform fuzzy way of yeah. approaching it. You know, uh, Dan Rome will, will show you much more, uh, I think, uh, sort of constructive and like precision ways of working with other people. Um, so, and this broaches the, the kind of the topic of criticism too a little bit, but like there's, I think, I don't know if it's a design thing or an art thing, but it's like, don't show unfinished work to idiots. <laughs> right, because they they don't have the context. Yeah, they don't have the context to understand that we like this is unfinished work and nothing's polished. These are the things that aren't polished because they're not supposed to be polished yet. Yeah. These are the things that aren't polished because we don't know what we're doing yet. Right, we need to work on this. And so when you're showing somebody sketches, it's it's very useful to sketch and live in front of them and talk them through and sort of explain the thinking of what. And then, like maybe better than that is you already have the sketches and you're showing and you're introducing them, sending them the sketches and asking them yeah. to react to them. The, the risk increases that right, like what's important and what we need to focus on right now um, is going to get lost in all the other things because they can say that's ugly. Like, right. Well, it's it's like who cares? That's right. not what's important. That's not what's right important now. right now. Right. Yeah. Right. So let me ask the uh, last question. So because uh, I want to get back, make sure we get back and uh, on the book. So. Hmm. Um, you had mentioned earlier that you know hopefully people they're going to buy it, but hopefully they enjoy it and they take some away from it. So so I, I want to give you a chance to just say like or talk about what is the thing that you hope people take away from the book when they turn that last page. Like what what are they going to get out of out of this book mm. that is not yet in the library of this field? Yes. So I'm visualizing in my head, and it's important that when we use the word visualize, we we remember that visualize didn't always, you know, mean make a scatter plot. Visualize used to mean when you close your eyes, what do you see? Yeah. What do you see with your mind's eye when I ask you, what's your favorite color? 
like what is that thing that happens yeah like when you can see it you know so right now i'm closing my eyes and i'm visualizing the last page of my book and um you know and when when you're a storyteller like people remember two things they remember the emotional peak of your story and they remember whatever happens at the end, at the, end. Yeah, right. the last yeah. thing so the last part of the book is that i am am hoping to fill you with enthusiasm and 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 uh enthusiasm um a little bit of pride in the craft and sort of also like a sense of duty that this craft is important uh it's important not only um to data science or business or academia but it's actually important to um to 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 everyone to all of civilization all of society and that's a real tool that you can actively take and used to do really really fantastic things in the world it's been used over and over across the last 400 years to push civilization forward mm-hmm. and create a better world and what i want you to do is that if you're a practitioner you know to to feel empowered and emboldened to go do that mm-hmm. and that um if you're not a practitioner or if you're maybe adjacent to the craft somehow is that you recognize the creators the makers the data storytellers out there who are doing that you know sort of the the people in the arena yeah. sort of thing yeah. and that you support them and that um and that you become fans of the craft yeah. uh, as well even if you're not practicing and that's that sort of i mean it's a very uh, not utopian but um optimistic sort of cheerleading rah 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 let's go do the thing it's a book that's very much focused on um championing the maker yeah. not the critic not the analyst but the maker the person in the arena and that's that's what i hope people uh turn that last page and feel sounds great i'm looking forward to reading it thanks so much thanks for watching come on appreciate it a lot of fun so again thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the policy viz podcast I put links to a lot of the books that RJ mentioned uh, in our discussion uh, on the show notes page. There's also uh, an Amazon collection uh, that I've pulled together from a blog post that RJ wrote. So you can go in and explore any of those books. And of course, if you haven't picked up your purchase of his new book, uh, be sure to do so. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.